and welcome to another episode of The Central Word, a podcast ministry of Central Baptist Church, Texarkana, Arkansas. Today's episode is from the morning message of December 25th and is preached by Brother Corey Fothergill. We pray this message brings you encouragement as you walk with our Savior this week. Here now is the Christmas morning message from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It's really kind of neat the way God works in his providence and in his sovereignty because um, she didn't really know, she, uh, she doesn't know what we're preaching on today. But the song fits because the song she just sang basically is what we know as the gospel, right? Is the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ultimate glory of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's the person of Christ. It's the work of Christ. And that, that is what she's saying about. Um, Aiden, if you would go back, a few, uh, see if you can't pick up the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing for me. And I, I, I just want us to look at these words of this song as well that we sang this morning from Hark the Herald. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, which speaks to His, uh, his eternal existence, His eternal being. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, Go to the next slide. Veiled in flesh, meaning he became human. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel. Go to the next verse. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life. We talked about that for a minute last night. To all he brings Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. I hope this morning that you can, you can gather here together with each other and you can say glory to the newborn King. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the glory of Christmas. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, a very, very familiar passage about the incarnation of Christ. But what I want us to do this morning is I want us to stand. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. And then we're going to pray and then we'll walk through it together this morning. And I actually, I want to I go back and start at verse 4. The bulk of the message starts in verse 6, but I want to go back to verse, verse 4 and start there through verse 11, where Paul tells the Philippians, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world at just the right time, at the perfect time, to execute your plan. And to execute that plan in such a way that we here on earth might experience your glory through the salvation that you have offered to us. Lord, I pray as we walk through this passage that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us, not only about the birth of your Son and the reason for him coming, but Lord, for the way that he provided for us the perfect pattern, the perfect example of walking in humbleness before the Lord. Lord, thank you again for each one who's here. May we honor you as we study out this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Christmas which uh, today obviously is Christmas Day, but Christmas is a time to celebrate, right? We've had parties that we've gone to. We had a Christmas Eve service last night. We've exchanged gifts. We've celebrated one another, with one another, um, all throughout this month. We gather together with family, with friends, with co-workers. We come to church. And we celebrate. But what are we truly celebrating? Yes, we we celebrate the birth of Christ. We say Jesus is the reason for the season. Right? How many of you have seen uh, this this meme? Uh, I don't want to call it a meme. It's a a picture, I guess, if you will, on, on Facebook that depicts Christ on the cross and it says... Uh, Jesus is the reason, and then down below it pictures his birth for the season. I, I just saw, saw, started seeing that here in the last few days. And we say that. We say that Jesus is the reason for the season. But what, what do we mean by that? Well, what it means is very simply this, that Jesus the only begotten Son of God the Father, came down to earth to dwell among us and carry out the Father's will and the Father's plan of redemption. And not only to carry it out, but to to bring it to completion, to bring it to fulfillment. 
Speaking of fulfillment, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tells us this. Talking about the birth of Christ and and the, the timing of the Lord in doing this. But it says here, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we celebrate this, we celebrate this season because of Christ, because of His birth, because of His incarnation. When God in His infinite wisdom at just the right time sent Him forth to be born of Mary. Theologically speaking, we call this the incarnation of Christ where He becomes Emmanuel, God with us. And He provides for us in His coming to earth the greatest example of humility that could ever be given. The greatest example of humility there has ever been or ever will be. Because he had to make himself so low in order for our salvation to take place. In this passage, we see God and we see Jesus being fully God. We see him being born of a virgin. We see him becoming fully human, only to humble himself in obedience to the point of death. Yes, there's great humility in Jesus coming to earth to dwell among us in the incarnation. Not just humility, but humiliation, because the, the word humiliation. It, it basically connotes a, a form of humility, right? It, it brings a person down to the lowest low that they can come to. Um, we, we, we've all been in situations where we have felt humiliated. And Jesus, in coming to earth, put himself in a situation where he was completely humiliated. But we also know that that's not the end because even after all the humiliation that Christ is going to suffer on our behalf on the cross, there's going to come a great exaltation through the resurrection and the ascension and the coronation of Jesus as Lord. And so we're going to talk through this passage just a little bit um, and we're going to discover these, these truths about Christ, who He is, how He came down to the earth in order to go back up again. And we're going to see how we can apply this to our lives. The first thing that we need to understand about, about Jesus, and really it's a, it's a foundational truth, is, is this, and we've talked about this a lot on Wednesday nights in our study of Colossians, but Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. He is uncreated, and He is eternal. Verse 6 of, uh, of Philippians chapter 2 here says, "...who, though He was in the form of God." And this word form, uh, 
a lot of people misunderstand this, this word. And they take it to mean something that it doesn't really mean. But what it means in this context in the Greek is the word morphe. And that word morphe is a word that means the nature or essence of something. And so Jesus is in the form of God. He's in the nature of God. He's in the essence of all the deity of God. And we can see that in the book of John. John chapter 1, the very beginning of that book. Where John states, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he talks later on in verse 14 about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews chapter 1 also speaks to this glorious truth about the, the uh, co-equality that Jesus has uh, with the Father, that He is in the form of God. He is the essential form of God. He is unalterably, unalterably God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is fully God. He is unalterably God. He cannot change. He cannot change. And as He is in the form of God, He is also equal with God. He is co-equal. In terms of, uh, of the Trinity, He has equal standing with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And verse, two, verse 6 tells us that He did not count this equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when we're talking about something being grasped here, we're not just talking about me picking this book up and, and grasping it. We're talking about clinging to it. To hold on to it with such intensity that we would, we would cling to its very existence. And the Bible tells us here in verse 6 that Jesus did not count that equality as something a thing to be grasped. And so what that means is that Jesus is going to voluntarily, willingly give up. He is not going to cling to all of the privileges and rights that He has as God. He is willingly giving them up for a season as He comes in the form of a human to earth. 
And so Jesus is fully God. And as he counts this equality, uh, or does not count this equality as a thing to be grasped, verse 7 continues and it says, but he emptied himself. And this kind of goes along with this not grasping uh, the, the refusal to cling to those privileges because he's going to empty himself of those privileges and of those, those rights, those prerogatives that he has as God. He does not exchange his deity for, for humanity. He's not giving up one iota of deity when he comes to earth. He, he, he maintains it the entire time he's here. But he willingly gives part of it uh, of those attributes of, of his deity, uh, and he sets those aside. Number one, his heavenly glory. Jesus gave up the enjoyment of the glory he had in heaven, uh, that face to face relationship with his Father that he maintained in heaven in, in, in doing that. He set aside his independent authority and he submitted his. Uh, authority to the will of the Father. And he, he says several times in the Gospels, I do what my Father wills for me to do. In the garden he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done when he's praying to the Father about what was to come. He gave up his independent authority. He gave up some of his divine attributes to be submitted to the Spirit's direction. Even though Christ was on earth as a human, he still maintained his omniscience, his omnipotence, all those attributes of God that we know and we talk about uh, from a theological standpoint. He still maintained those, but he did not use them all the time. There were certain instances where he did. He could know what was in a man's heart, what he was thinking. But he also says that no one knows the time of his return. Even he doesn't know. Only the Father knows. And so that omniscience, in that sense, he is set aside. Because only the Father knows, only the Father knows when that time is going to come, when that time is right. And he gave up eternal riches to become a man of humble means. You know, Jesus was a borrower of sorts when he was on earth, if you think about it. He, uh, first of all, he had to borrow a place to be born, the stable, because there was no room for them in the inn. He had to borrow a place later on in life to lay his head. He didn't own a home. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat. In the Sea of Galilee, he borrowed a boat to go back and forth. And he borrowed this boat also to preach to all the multitudes, to the crowds from this boat. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room for the Passover, for the Last Supper. Lastly, he had to borrow a tomb 
to be buried in. So Jesus set aside His privilege of eternal riches when He came to earth. Verse 7, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. And there's the the word form again. And this is the same word that's used in verse 6 where He talks about being in the form of God. Jesus came in the form of a servant, in the morphe of a servant. And not just a, a servant, but a slave. So Jesus had the, the essence of being a, a, a slave. He had the attributes of being a slave, of being a servant. He had the nature, the exact replication of a slave when He came to earth. Because he said, he told his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve. And perhaps the greatest example of that can be found in John chapter 13, starting in verse 3. It's the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I'm going to read all of this to you through verse 16 because it is so important for us to be able to understand and to see Christ as a, as a servant. And the example He gives to His disciples in this moment, he's, and John records for us here, starting in verse 3 of John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And just to to provide a bit of a little context here, the person who washed people's feet when they came into a home was, was, was a servant. The master of the house didn't do that. It was beneath him. The lowest of the servants was tasked with washing of of people's feet. And here Jesus takes on that humble estate as a lowly servant to wash his disciples' feet. Verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, saying, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then we come to verse 12, and and he goes on, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's 
feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus came to earth in the form, having the exact nature and essence of a slave, a servant. And so we know that Jesus was fully God. And then we are also to understand that Jesus is fully human. The next part of verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. So as Christ was born, He was born of Mary, and He was born as a human being. He was born in the likeness of men, which means He took on all the essential attributes of humanity. You know, Jesus got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. Even on the cross, He got thirsty. Remember, He said, I thirst. As He was dying on the cross. So Jesus, in order to be that perfect substitute for our sins, He had to, he, he had to not only be fully God, He had to be fully human. He had to be fully man. And this verse tells us that He was fully Human. He was born in the likeness of men. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin. In the flesh. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus Christ was fully human. He did not sin. That was the only attribute of humanity that, that, that Christ did not have. Was the sin nature. He was... Uh, Every man born after Adam was born with the sin nature. But the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth supernaturally means He was not conceived in a natural way. Right? And so there's no way He could have had a sin nature. And without a sin nature, He could not sin. And so although fully human... He was absent of a sin nature. And this is, the, um, th this is what is going to allow Him to be that perfect sacrifice, that perfect Lamb that was killed on the cross. And so Jesus is fully God. He is fully human. He has become the God-man. Fully God and fully man. And then it says in verse 8, and being found in human form. And this takes this humanity just a little bit further. 
And it, it talks about his humanity from the perspective of those who were around him, the people that, that came into contact with him. He was, he was seen as merely a man. And this human form that it talks about is, is not necessarily that morphe. It's not that essence. It's not those attributes. It's kind of like uh, you can compare it to stages of life. Um, the Greek word it talks about is, is called schema. And we get the word scheme from that. But you can look at it as phases of life. You know, when you're born, you're a baby, and you grow a little bit, and you become a toddler, then you become a, a child, you become a teenager, you become a young adult, you become a, an older adult. You go through these stages, you go through these forms of life, of humanity. And Jesus was found in human form. In other words, the people that were around him who he ministered to, who, who he came into contact with on a daily basis, they saw him as a man, as just a man. In a human form, in a, in a human scheme, if you will. His deity was not fully recognized when he was on earth by those around him. And so he was found in human, in, in human form where he's going to humble himself because not only is he fully God and fully human, he is fully obedient. He is fully obedient. The second part of verse 8 says he humbled himself And this humbling of himself is even further of a humbling than just being born. Every step that Jesus goes through toward his, um, his death is a further humbling of himself, right? Because he starts out as a baby born in a, in, a, in a manger in a stable. And he grew up as a man of humble means. As he ministered to people around him, he was he was he was mocked. He was uh, he was not believed. Even his own family didn't believe him. His own town that he grew up in scorned him. But he never demanded human rights. He never gave a defense. But yet he gave himself over to persecution and suffering at the hands of unbelievers virtually every day. And then when it comes time for him to, to, to come to that ultimate obedience to the Lord and give his life for sinners, he most assuredly humbled himself even more. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. In talking about the suffering of Christ, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Christ continued to humble himself and become obedient to the will of God the Father to the point of death and death on a cross. And we know about crucifixion. We know that was the most cruel excruciating death that could have ever been dreamed up. It was the most degrading form of death that there was and probably ever will be. The things the body was put through, the things that had to be going through the mind of someone who was up on a cross hanging there by his hands and feet with nails through them, But Christ came to earth so that He might die. So that He might die for you and He might die for me. He humbled Himself to the point of being so obedient to the Father that He suffered the greatest humiliation that could could take place. We... As I said a little while ago, we, we find ourselves in situations of being humiliated ever so often. As a teacher, uh, especially of high school students, I offer myself up to humiliation almost every day. And I receive it with gladness. Because I, I, as the saying goes, if they stop making fun of you, they don't like you, right? To a certain extent, that's true. But that's absolutely nothing. There is nothing on this earth I could go through, I could submit myself to as humiliation that could equal what Christ went through on the cross for you and for me. So Christ came down from heaven in order to take on the form of a human only to give that life up. He says in John chapter 10, I lay my life down willingly. I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. Christ was so obedient that he laid down his life for his sheep. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the humiliation of the cross. And you can't celebrate Christmas, you can't celebrate the birth without also remembering the death. And what He did for us. He was born to die. And if you remember His death, then you can't, you can't also celebrate Christmas without also remembering the resurrection. 
and the victory that we have. We, you know, we talked last night about the, 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 the light and we are the light of the world and how darkness cannot overcome the light. You know why darkness cannot overcome the light? It's because of the resurrection. It's because of the victory we have through Jesus Christ Amen. and the fact that God in His infinite wisdom gave us this free gift of salvation. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God for all that He has done for us. But then we get to verses 9 through 11. If there's much humiliation and death, then there is going to be exaltation to come. And so what happens here in verse 9, Paul continues in this, in this, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, but this verses 6 through 11 is considered to be a hymn that was probably sung by the churches, the, the early church, about the incarnation of Christ. And verse 9 continues, and Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. So not only is Jesus fully God and fully man and fully obedient, Jesus is fully glorified and exalted. And He was exalted by the Father in in four ways. He was exalted in His resurrection. He was exalted in His ascension back to heaven. John chapter 17, the beginning of of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, verses 1-5 through says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And here's where where I'm getting to this exaltation of, of Christ. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now... Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When God highly exalted Jesus Christ and He ascended back to heaven, to the heavenly places to sit at the right hand of the Father, He returned to the glory He had from the beginning of time. The glory that He had prior to coming to earth. Because in His humiliation, He had no glory. He set that aside. And He had to pray to the Father in John chapter 17, in verse 5, let me have the glory back. And upon His ascension and coronation at the right hand of the Father, He received His glory back, but He was also exalted in that He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. 
And His intercession is involved with that, that, uh, that sacrifice that He made, that imputation of His righteousness onto us. Because once we are saved, we are clothed in His righteousness. Faultless to stand before the throne of God. You know what that means? That means that not only was Jesus fully glorified, that means someday, one of these days, we also will be glorified. We'll be raised to heaven and given a a glorified body. So Jesus is highly exalted by God. He's given a name that is above every name. And the name's not going to be revealed until until verse 11. But then verse 10 is perhaps one of the greatest statements that we can ever read. Verses 10 and 11 In those last days, in that very last day, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every knee. And he says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee is going to bow. The angels in heaven, the saints that are already there worshiping in eternity with Jesus Christ, their knees are going to bow. Everyone on earth, every created human being on earth, whether saved or unsaved, whether a believer or an unbeliever, is going to bow their knee. Every creature under the earth, those demons, they exist. They will one day bow their knee. Those unbelievers who have already passed on from this earth and have gone to their eternal damnation in hell will bow their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ in that day. Not only will we bow, but every tongue is going to confess. Verse 11 that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is that name. That name that is above every name is the name Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign ruler, not only of the world, but He's the sovereign ruler of our hearts and of our minds. And when we come to Christ, we need to, we, we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge and confess Jesus Christ as our Lord. Yes, He's our Savior, but He is also our Lord. He cannot be Savior without being Lord. He cannot be Lord without being our Savior. And so, my prayer is this. If you're here today and you have not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning, that today you would do that. And you would do that as it says here in the last phrase of verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. 
Today is the day of salvation. The acceptable time is now. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the call today, number one, and most importantly, is to come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit calls, calls on our heart, draws us to Jesus, draws us to the Lord, draws us into that salvation experience. All you must do is believe and confess. You need to confess your sin. You need to confess and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that He died for your sins, was raised on the third day by the Father. You need to confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord to the glory of God the Father. But secondly, we must also, if we already are in Christ, we must allow Christ to be that sovereign authority in our lives. We must submit our will to His will. We must become more like Him every day. We must live in humility. We must die to ourselves. We must seek first His kingdom in all that we do. This is what brings glory to God. Bringing glory to God is our life's purpose. That's why we're here. To glorify the Father. And finally, we can follow Christ's example of humility. The beginning of Philippians chapter 2, and I, I'm, I'm bringing this quickly to a close, says this. So if there's any encouragement, and he's talking to the church at Philippi, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who showed us the way in coming to earth, in dying for our sins, 
in being so humbled, being so obedient. He offers us the example of Christ and His incarnation as the pattern of perfection for us to follow. I'm going to ask Kathy to come and play. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Central Word Podcast. Our prayer is that this episode builds you up in your faith as you walk daily with Christ. May God bless you in this week to come.